Father, we praise you for the privilege of gathering together. How good it is when your people gather together under your words to hear your voice. We pray that as we do that now, that you would feed us and encourage us by your Holy Spirit so that we may live for Jesus today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, now I've got a little music quiz for you, okay? So I just need to get uh, Spotify up. And uh, here it comes. Now, you ready for this? See whether you can name the tune. Imagine. Imagine by uh, John Lennon. And uh, it, it almost could have been um, don't Look Back in Anger by Oasis, which has the same kind of little opening first bar or so. Um, but no, it was, it was imagined by, by John Lennon, one of the top songs of the 20th century, um, and a bit of an anthem for atheism. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. You know how it goes. The song goes on, um, imagine no religion. Imagine everyone living in peace and harmony, just living for today. Imagine. Strong, powerful words that continue to be drawn upon and referenced from time to time by different people. Uh, On the day after the Paris attacks back in 2015, um, a passerby sat down at a mobile piano outside the Bataclan concert hall And he sang, imagine, to a watching crowd before going on his way in tears. It's an impressive song. But if you start to dig a little, uh, then you find that things maybe aren't quite what they seem. After all, it's a song that longs for peace. And it claims, as many people do, and you might have heard this in different places, that we could achieve peace if only we could get rid of religion. But of course, when you look at the 20th century, you realise pretty quickly what nonsense that is, because the worst conflicts and slaughters of the 20th century were underpinned not by religious or faith-inspired worldviews, but by atheist ideologies. The song also starts to lose some of its power when you realise that the line, imagine no possessions, no need for greed and hunger, were written and sung by a millionaire rock star living in a mansion. Ringo Starr later came to the defence of the song and he said in an interview, oh, John just said, imagine, nothing more. He just said, you know, just think about it in your heads. That's all he wanted you to do. Just imagine. Leave it at that. I'm not so sure. But um, today I want us to compare that with a different kind of vision that we're asked to imagine. That's what these words in Matthew chapter 5 are, a vision of the kingdom of God. Now these are are famous words, aren't they? They've acquired a status of their own outside the Bible. We call them the Beatitudes. And even if somebody knows nothing about the Bible, they might just have heard some of these Beatitudes, um, even if they don't quite realise where they come from. The meek will inherit the earth, that kind of thing. But the, 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 the problem with uh, that's the way it's been sort of taken out of this um, context, is that it's easy to forget the context in which it's originally written. And in fact, it's the same with the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. It's uh, chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew's Gospel, 
which we're going to be working through. But again, it's relatively well known as Bible passages go, and it's easy to forget that Matthew put this as part of his entire gospel. And the entire gospel is about convincing his readers that Jesus is the Messiah and that real life worth having is found in him. So what has happened so far in Matthew's gospel? Matthew talks about where Jesus came from, his origins, and then the beginning of his ministry. And then we saw last week, at the end of chapter 4, he calls the first disciples to follow him. And meanwhile, he's healing many people and crowds are following him. And uh, chapter 5, verse 1, if you have a look, uh, he initially withdraws from the crowds up the mountainside and his disciples come to him. And that's where the title, The Sermon on the Mount, comes from. But the title obscures who the audience is. See, the people listening to him, at least at the beginning of the sermon, are those who have already started to follow him. And it's helpful to see that because people often read these words as if there's some kind of list of rules, what you need to do to get into Jesus' kingdom, to get into heaven, if you like. You know, a little checklist. Have you done all these things? Are they true of you? Then, yeah, you can come in. But actually, the people he's talking to are already in. They are already followers of Jesus. He's called them to do that. This isn't a list of what you need to do before you're allowed to be in, but more a description of what the life of the kingdom looks like. And this is where we need to imagine for a moment. Imagine living in a world where these things were true, where people did these things, where those who mourn are comforted, the meek are lifted up, a place full of mercy, of people with pure hearts, where people are known for being peacemakers. Isn't it mouth-wateringly beautiful? Think about that accusation that religion causes wars. Is the life of this kingdom going to cause wars? Or is it going to stop them? It's meant to be mouth-watering. That's why we've called this series Jesus' Mouth-Watering Manifesto. So let's dig a little deeper on each of these statements, these beatitudes in these verses. There's a clear kind of symmetry and structure if you look, particularly between verses 3 and 10, and then 11 and 12 are kind of expanding the last one, verse 10. But between 3 and 10, there's, you know, there's a group of people who are said to be blessed. Then there's a promise. The first and the last promise are the same. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which suggests that this is the summary of everything that comes in between. And the ones who are blessed are generally groups of people that the world doesn't celebrate or count as particularly important or worthy. Jesus is saying that in the kingdom of God, everything is upside down. What the world despises, the kingdom of God values. What the world values, the kingdom of God despises. Do you see? So that that word blessed is is a, a classic bit of jargon, isn't it? Uh, Here, it it literally means fortunate or in an enviable position. In other words, you know, see that person over there who, who, who looks like a nobody but is actually thirsting for righteousness? Envy them. Don't envy the, the, the millionaires or the movie stars or the, the celebrities or whatever it might be. You know how we like to kind of play spot the celebrity, particularly in the streets of Hampstead? Uh, well, it's fine, isn't it? But actually... Who should you envy? Envy those who thirst for righteousness, not those who live in the big houses. 
Now, I know the Bible does say, do not envy, but that there is a right way of, of seeing something admirable in somebody else, something godly, and wanting to follow that example. That's the kind of meaning behind this word, blessed, then. And these verses are saying, when you see a person that the world would pass over, but whose heart and life are set on the values of the kingdom of God, realise they're not like nobody, they've got it all. Now, to try and help us get a handle on these uh, Beatitudes, I've sum- summarised them in three headings. You can see that on the yellow sheets. Really, each of these statements that Jesus makes can, can stand alone. You can have an entire sermon on each verse. But they do loosely group together around these themes of humility, mercy and justice, which, as we look at them, just reminds us of that opening verse from Micah, as well as uh, Psalm 1, which talks about the blessed life. And what does that show us as we see the kind of Old Testament pointing forwards? Well, it just shows us that Jesus isn't advertising something new here. It's not an entirely new thing, but it's the fulfilment of God's promises. This is what God's plan for his people has always looked like. But God's people, you see, had begun to reduce that plan to a list of rules. Rather than a mouth-watering, open-ended vision of what wholeheartedly loving God might look like. So Jesus had to correct them, and we'll see some of that later on in the chapter. You you have heard that it was said this, but I tell you, Jesus says, about a number of different issues that we'll see. He's correcting their reducing of what God had promised to a list of kind of tick-the-box rule-keeping. But we begin, first of all, in verses 3 to 5, with... Humility. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That that phrase is an Old Testament phrase. It means those who humble themselves before God, those who tremble at his word, those who realise that before God they have nothing to offer. They can only ask for mercy. And and, and connected to that, verse 5, blessed are the meek. The meek are those who humble themselves in the eyes of the world, who take the role of a servant. Now, get real, we might say, or, or think privately. You know, that, that's all very well in church, where we kind of approve of public niceness. But, you know, out there in the real world, if you don't push yourself forwards, you get forgotten. But what are we pushing ourselves forward for when we adopt that attitude of grabbing everything we can? Well, whatever we might think might be on offer if we advance in the eyes of the world, look at what is on offer to those who seek not their own advancement, but the advancement of those around them. What does he say? The meek will inherit the earth. Now, meekness doesn't mean weakness, which is how we often sort of hear it, isn't it? Do you want to be meek? Hmm, I'm not sure. Well, Jesus describes himself as meek, doesn't he? If you, and if you study Jesus' life properly, I don't think you could ever call him weak. Think what strength it took to take himself to the cross. You know, standing up in front of the uh, human court, being found guilty of crimes he did not commit, and, and not making a fuss about it, not kind of standing up and saying, no, you've got it all wrong, I'm innocent. No, he, he, he was stronger than that, and he used his strength not for himself, but to save the world. That is meekness. So it was the London Marathon today, wasn't it? I don't know if anyone was 
down there to cheer people on. But um, at the last London Marathon, a year ago, uh, I don't know if you saw the pictures of a runner called David Hyeth. And he kind of collapsed about 200 metres short of the finish line. He kind of ended up kind of crawling on the floor. You know, he was desperate to keep going, but he'd obviously just, everything in his body had, had given up. And a guy he'd met, uh, he, sorry, a guy he'd never met, a guy who came up behind him who never, he'd never met called Matthew Rees came up. And, and this guy, Matthew Rees, was about to go for his sprint finish. So he'd just got enough in him, and he could, you know, the finish line is, is, is just about, he knew where it was coming, he'd just got something left, he was going to go for it. And then he saw this guy, David, on the floor. And so he abandoned his sprint finish. And he went and helped David onto his feet and he dragged him towards the finish line. And uh, because David actually started the race about a minute after Matthew, who rescued him, he ended up recording a faster time than him when he got him over the line. And I gather that they were going to start the marathon today together. Um, and it would be interesting to see whether, how they got on today. But you see, that is meekness. And can you see it's not the same as weakness? when Matthew decided to use his strength, not for the sprint finish for himself, but to help this guy he'd never met, but he could see was in need and struggling. He gave up himself for that guy. Now that, in one sense, is, is just a picture, isn't it? But what are our gifts? What are our strengths? It's easy to use our strengths and our talents just to, you know, make sure I've got the best possible job in the best possible place, paying the most amount of money from, for me and my family or whatever it is, so I can build up my security, I can build up my fortress in my life and, uh, you know, make sure I'm okay. And the challenge is, actually, well, you could do that, but will you use your, your strengths, will we use our, our gifts, our strengths, not for ourselves, but for others, for people around us. C.S. Lewis said something helpful about humility. He said, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Because you see, sometimes we hear this and we kind of think it means, you know, if you're going to be humble, well, that just means sort of not, you know, not, you can never push yourself forwards. You can never say, well, actually, yeah, I could do that. Um, as if you're sort of not allowed to. But it, it, it's not saying that. It's not, it's not saying that you need to pretend you don't have the gifts and strengths that you may have. But it just means refusing to play the world's game of letting those things define us. See, fundamentally, I'm not, um, a, a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a lawyer. I'm not a banker. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a teacher. I'm not even a Bible teacher, fundamentally in my identity as a human being. I'm a child of God. That is what defines me. And once I've got that in place, I'm free not to, you know, I don't have to sort of find my place in the pecking order. Am I above and below the other people around us? Where do I fit in? Well, no, I'm a child of God. I'm accepted. I'm loved. And therefore, the gifts and talents that God has given me, I can use them for the world around me instead of for me. That is poverty of spirit, that is meekness. And then in between, do you see a slightly more puzzling verse perhaps is verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Now Jesus means far more than what, what we normally mean by mourning. 
That's the way the, the Bible uses the word mourn for more than just bereavement. It's about mourning a broken world, mourning the fact that the world is not how it's meant to be, which includes mourning the loss of loved ones. But it goes beyond that to mourning our sin, mourning our brokenness, mourning the brokenness of the world in general. So think of the growing number of stabbings that we're tragically hearing about on the streets of North London, just a mile or two away from where we are right now. Just, do we mourn that? Do we feel like we, we want to engage with that as Christians? Jesus is not saying, you know, come on, chin up, smile when you're sad in the face of brokenness. But he's, he's saying, actually, those who mourn the brokenness of the world are those to whose aid God consistently comes. Now, I've known that for myself in, in my own struggles with illness at different times. It's not that the pain disappears, but that even in the middle of the pain, God draws near to us. He's not immune from pain. He became a human being to experience all the brokenness of this broken world and take it on his shoulders and end it. And while the world often mourns with no hope at all, Christians may mourn and weep and long for something better in hope because of what God has promised. And so whether, that's, whether we're experiencing things in our own lives or whether we're just experiencing the brokenness of North London in whatever shape it is, There is a right sense in which we are to say, no, this isn't right. We don't want this to continue. We we mourn the fact. This is not the world as God created it to be. How long, O Lord? And in doing that, he promises to draw near to us and to his world. So that is humility. Then uh, in verses 6 to 8, there's mercy. Again, a kind of sandwich between 6 and 8. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness goes with kind of being pure in heart. And uh, that that makes us think, doesn't it? What what, what do we hunger and thirst for? What are our deepest longings for ourselves or our our families? What, What do we think about when we have nothing else to think about? Where does our mind wander? See, those kind of questions give us a little glimpse of what we may be hungering and thirsting for. Is it righteousness? What is righteousness? What does it mean to be pure in heart? I think, I think those, that kind of word has got a bit of a bad press, hasn't it? We think of self-righteousness, which is a different thing. It's not what we're talking about here. But that's often how it's heard, isn't it? Of being holier than thou, I guess, is, is how that word is often used. And if you, but if you want to see what righteousness actually means, look, look, in between verses 6 and 8, you see, blessed are the merciful. That is what righteousness looks like. And there is just a glimpse there, perhaps, of a conflict with the Pharisees. Again, think of the context of Matthew's Gospel as a whole. It's going to be Jesus against the Pharisees in various different ways as he points out where they're getting things wrong, where they're misunderstanding God's plan. And they accuse him of things and he comes back at them and sort of says, look, you've missed the point. Because they thought righteousness was all kind of tick-the-box law-keeping. They were very proud of themselves because they'd managed to keep all the right laws and rules. And then they were, because of that, they were notoriously unmerciful towards those who didn't quite measure up. But righteousness is not about looking down on others, but it's the very opposite. It's showing mercy. And then you too will be shown mercy. Now, one of the things that came up in the uh, vision evening that we had 
this week uh, that Daniel mentions um, was the way that that there uh, there are many living within walking distance of St. John's who would probably look at our beautiful building and even us as uh, people who come here and think, well, I'm not sure that's for me. You know, I can't quite identify with that. It's too much privilege, too, you know, it's too smart or whatever. Now, I don't think that's universally the case by any means. But how do we ensure that we as a church are merciful, as Jesus describes it here? Showing love and mercy and welcome to all kinds of people. Those who thirst for righteousness, those who are pure in heart, will be filled, will see God. In other words, you can, you can sum up the best thing about being in God's kingdom as simply knowing God. And one day that will be face to face. Do you value that? Do you realise how precious that is? It's one of the, the differences between Christianity and other world faiths, isn't it? So uh, maybe think of Islam, for example. So the Quran. Um, describes paradise as full of rivers flowing with wine. Now remember, Muslims are forbidden from drinking alcohol, but in paradise, they believe Allah will compensate them for what they have given up in this life, and then they'll be able to drink as much wine as they want out of the rivers. And it's the same with sex. So the, the record of the writings and sayings of Muhammad and the Hadith says that, as my, my understanding anyway, says that in, in paradise, each man will have 70 virgins who somehow recover their virginity at the beginning of each new day in paradise. So it's a kind of sensual paradise of sorts, sensual kind of compensation. But go to the Christian description of the new heavens and the new earth, and you find that eternal life, is, is, at its heart, is just knowing God. Now, yes, the context for that will be a physical new world. You know, it's not just sort of floating around in the sky. It is heaven comes to earth. This world is remade. No more mourning, crying, and, and pain, and mourning. But, but at, the, at the heart of it is God living among his people. So Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, he says that there is no marriage in the new heavens and the new earth because marriage and sexual intimacy will be fulfilled in the intimacy of an eternal, unspoiled relationship with God. So the best thing God can give us is not stuff, it's himself. And he gave us himself in Christ. That is what the gospel is, isn't it? God giving himself to us, not waiting for us to go to him, but him coming to us. So what does he say? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for showing mercy, and you will be filled. You will find the deepest intimacy in knowing God forever. So so often we, we, we spend our lives kind of looking to fill that kind of gap that we feel looking for intimacy in different places, different ways. And Jesus is saying, the place where you're going to find it is in God through trusting in Jesus. That is ultimately where true satisfaction is going to be found. So hunger and thirst, not to fill those uh, desires in other ways, hunger and thirst for Jesus, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you will be filled. 
And then finally, in verses 9 to, to 12, they focus in a couple of different ways on justice. Blessed are the peacemakers. What a wonderful thing to be known as. Do you want to be known as a peacemaker? Somebody who, who brings peace in the midst of conflict. Are we peacemakers in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods? They will be sons of God or children of God because that is what God is like. He is a peacemaker. Life in his kingdom means being like him. Then we see in verse 10 that living like this puts us at odds with the values of the world and the world tends to make life difficult for those who are different. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that all the other things in these Beatitudes are things you can aspire to. You, 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 know, you can want to be more humble, more merciful. But would any of us ever say we want to be insulted, we want more persecution, please? Is that something you, you can aspire to? Well, the Bible presents persecution as a, a reality, a, an expectation for Christians, rather than something that happens to other people in other countries, which is often how we think of it today. But do notice that, that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for being obnoxious, rude, unkind in how they express themselves. See, sadly, plenty of Christians get into trouble for doing that. But that's not persecution because of righteousness. Increasingly, however, we can expect living openly as a Christian to cause problems. Now, I saw a photo this week of, about, um, of an NHS ward um, in 1956, with about eight nurses in this ward kneeling around a table in the centre of the ward with their patients in their beds kind of looking on and they're all kneeling kneeling around this table at the beginning of their shift and they are praying together for their patients in an NHS ward. Can you imagine what kind of action would result from doing that today? Now, of course, it wouldn't necessarily be wise to do exactly that these days. There are ways of sharing your Christian faith that will keep the doors open in the workplace or wherever it is. But the point seems to be, if you live this kind of life that Jesus holds out here, you can expect life to get not easier, but harder for people to insult you, to speak evil against you. Is it worth it? Jesus says, it is. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I summarised these uh, final verses as, as justice because making peace and doing what is right, even when it costs you, is standing up for justice and it's leaving the justice to God. Our tendency when uh, we are ill-treated is to complain, is to fight back, is to seek to impose justice ourselves. But actually, that is God's job. Ours is to be peacemakers and to leave the rest to him. So imagine, imagine a world like this. Imagine living among people who are like this. Imagine genuinely letting go of all the things the world around us tells us to value and simply living by these values in a totally topsy-turvy way. But isn't there a bit of a problem? Because who can say that they belong in a kingdom like this? See, that's how many of us, or many people, have responded to the Sermon on the Mount. So, you know, well, you know, what Jesus describes here is basically impossible. It's basically unrealistic. 
And the extraordinary description of the kingdom continues through the rest of the chapter, addressing things like anger and how we speak and lust and sexual immorality and loving our enemies. And it climaxes in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, who can say that what Jesus describes and demands is within their grasp? Because what is the standard? The standard is perfection, verse 48. 100%, not 50, not 80, 100%. Not even just making sure that we're better than people around us. The standard of life in God's kingdom is God. Who can say they measure up to that? I can't. I don't think you can. But Jesus did. And when it comes to Jesus and his song, his sermon, you see, unlike John Lennon, There's no mismatch between the millionaire in his mansion and the aspiration to a world without possessions, whatever that means. Here is someone who absolutely and without fail did what these verses describe. Isn't that true of Jesus? When you look down this list of Beatitudes, who who, who despite his spiritual riches gave up everything. He humbled himself. He prized doing the right thing over what might have been more convenient. Think of the way he was treated as he went to the cross. He was utterly innocent, but he remained gentle and meek and entrusted himself to God. See, here is someone who didn't just talk about mercy, but he actually got on with being merciful, whether in his healing of the sick and the lame, his compassion for tax collectors and sinners that the world despised, his willingness to forgive the apparently unforgivable. Here is somebody who made his mission in the world one of peacemaking, ultimately bringing peace between God and the world and between human beings. See, the kingdom Jesus describes here is a place we don't belong, but Jesus very much does. And the extraordinary thing then is that he invites us to come into that kingdom anyway. Not, of of course, on the basis of us being able to measure up to those perfect standards, because we can never do that, but on the basis of what he has done for us by giving his life for us, making it possible for sinners like us to enter this kingdom. So have we done that? Have we accepted that invitation to this mouth-watering kingdom, the place where we don't naturally belong, but we're invited to be? We'd love to help you do that if you've not yet done that for yourself. We'll be running Christianity Explored in a few weeks' time, which is a great chance to Uh, look into these things further. But if you have accepted that invitation, if you you are following Jesus, if you're seeking to live this kingdom life, here's the challenge, you see. This this kingdom life that is mouth-watering and beyond our grasp in its perfection, this kingdom life is open to us to start living now. Not because we think we can do it perfectly, Not because we think we need to do it in order for God to accept us, but because this is the life of the kingdom into which we've been invited. So what will it look like for us to start living this kingdom life? Which of the values we hold are more like the world around us and less like the values of this topsy-turvy kingdom? If someone spent a week following one of our non-Christian neighbours or colleagues around and then a week following us around, where would they see the difference in the decisions that we make, in the values that we have, in the people that we love? 
And the last thing to consider is that if this life looks attractive just on paper, as we read it in the Bible, think how attractive it ought to be if we actually live it in real life. The Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal said, we need to make people wish the gospel were true before they will consider whether it is true. We need to make people wish the gospel were true before they will consider whether it is true. Can can we live humbly before God and others, hungering and thirsting, not for more wealth or status, but for God, marked by showing mercy, known for being peacemakers? Can we live this way in such a way that people will long for what Jesus offers through his death to be real? They'll see the difference and they'll say, I I want to know whether this is true because this has changed your life. And so that will draw them to look into these things and find the firm foundations to what we believe in the Bible and in Jesus. So imagine this mouth-watering kingdom. But don't just imagine it. Get on and live it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for how this description of life in your kingdom was so true of him. And thank you that he went to the cross for us, that he meekly gave up his rights so that we might have life through his death. Thank you that through his death we can enter your kingdom and be given the right to live as your children and begin to live this mouth-watering kingdom life. Help us to see what that looks like for each of us in the the nitty-gritty of everyday life. Pray that we would be marked by our hunger and thirst, not for everything that the world hungers and thirsts for, but our hunger and thirst for righteousness. Pray we would be merciful. Pray that we would be known not for our desire to big ourselves up, but for our poverty of spirit, for our meekness. That we would genuinely mourn the brokenness of our world. Pray that we would be peacemakers in our lives, in our relationships. That we be the kind of people who bring those who fall out together. That we would be doers of justice, seekers of justice. Help us to see what that means for ourselves in our lives. Help us, what it's, help us to see what it means for us as a church as we seek to be your people here in North London. We pray. All these things in Jesus' name. Amen.